Reed Martin and I often talk about how the fact that the Reduce Shakespeare Company was born as a project of love. Done, done for the love of it at, on summers and weekends at Renaissance fairs. So many companies begin as, as passion projects that turn into careers. And I'm talking to somebody right now who has done something similar, Lisa Tromovich, the producing artistic director of Livermore Shakespeare Company. Am I right? Is that your origin story? Yes, I always tell students that, that I work with and even other artists that I never planned to be a founder of an artistic organization. I'd always imagined myself just working within the existing system uh -huh. and in fact started at the Old Globe Theater where I met Reed Martin uh -huh. when he was starting out. And it all comes full circle. It does. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 686, Livermore Shakespeare Festival. I just returned from the Shakespeare Theater Association Conference, this year hosted by Shakespeare Dallas. It was a week-long event attended by individuals and member organizations from all over the world where folks told tales, swapped jokes, had a few drinks, exchanged ideas, shared best practices, and for several long 12 to 14-hour days, just inspired the hell out of each other. All of us connected by our love of and work with William Shakespeare on stage. I recorded several conversations with inspiring folks while I was there, which you'll hear in the coming weeks. But I wanted to kick off with my conversation with Lisa Tromovich, the producing artistic director of the Livermore Shakespeare Festival in California, who turned her love of Shakespeare into a thriving community and artistic center. Lisa began our conversation by telling me how she came to Livermore in the first place. I heard from a friend that there was this community in Northern California called the Tri-Valley, mm -hmm. and it had an active community theater, but no professional theater of its own. Right. And my heart just went, oh, oh, sweet. they need a professional company. I should go give them that. Oh, so you literally saw a need and went to try to fill that need. Exactly. There were, I had a friend from the past who uh, thought that maybe starting a company was a good idea. We started out, they thought, they, she and her husband thought they knew what they were getting into, but then didn't. So we started something up, um, and then ultimately I put together a community board and started a, a really highly functional company, um, and it's now been 17 years. We started outdoors in the vineyards of Livermore, so it's a, an outdoor Shakespeare festival, it's mm -hmm. Livermore Shakespeare Festival, um, and we've always dreamed of becoming full year, year-round company to be sustainable. Um, it's part of our sustainability and our succession planning is to create a company that could be run by someone who isn't the founder and just doing it for love. Right. Um, but we got to get it to that level. And so now we're looking at building a building at the heart of our downtown as part of Stockman's Park. It's with a dozen cultural core collaborators. It's really exciting. That's amazing that you are the founding personality of the Livermore Shakes, but you don't. You want to move beyond the cult of personality that has kept it thriving uh, for this long and existing. Um, but you, so you came in wanting to be um, a grown-up theater. You know what I mean? A grown. Mm -hmm. You know, you came. How do you start that? I mean, 
do you start a community basis? I mean, do you just, hey, you start putting on shows and hope people come? Or do you get the band, the board together before you put on the shows? What was the process of that? Well, actually, it you know, sort of a blessing or a curse. Because my first job out of college was at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, I had this idea of what a theater should be like and how you should behave and the kind of stage management you need to support your actors. Um, You know, and so I actually started more along the lines of trying to be a professional company, even though it was just me running it out of my back bedroom. Um, So we did a lot of little things where I was trying to, like I would use kids as stage managers, but train them. I was an equity stage manager. So train them, and we would try to do all of those things that support actors. And I think what happened in the feedback I got was the actors really appreciated all these things that we were doing for them, Mm -hmm. um, even if I was doing it with interns. Um, And they really responded, and they felt supported. And so in those first few years, people just got stipends. You know, we started at $250 for the whole gig, and I was so proud when we could double it to $500 and then $800. And now we're, you know, doing minimum wage salary. They're W-2 employees. I mean, $500 is legitimate. 500 bucks a week is a legit. Oh, no, no, not a week. Oh, yeah. a show. Yeah, those actors oh. put in those first several years. Oh, wow. And we are, you know, here in California, we're having discussions about AB5. And, yeah. and I keep thinking, I don't know how our company could exist today yeah. if we hadn't had those intervening years where accepting a stipend was possible. So all of those artists yeah. that were in those early years in those shows, they contributed to who we are today. Well, and this is part of the conversation in California about AB5 is that, you know, you start as a passion project and unless you grow with the support that you want, you might only always remain a passion project if you can't conform to the new laws. And that seems that there's, we're at the risk of losing things. Exactly. And so I think, you know, for-profit businesses don't have this interim stage that artistic groups do where people might say, yeah, I want to do this because it's fulfilling to me. And can we at least get enough money together so that my gas money is paid? And then we all share a vision about the company becoming an institution in in the community that everyone benefits from. But we grow through this awkward stage, whereas for-profit businesses, investors put the money in so that everyone's paid from the get-go and they may lose that money. Right. Um, but they know that going in. Right. It's a very different way of creating a company. So we're a business, but we are so... Well, and I feel like the Reduce Shakespeare Company is, we are... We are a for-profit company, but I use air quotes for that because we don't make any profits. And Reed and I don't even pay ourselves unless we're acting. We don't. That's the only time we pay ourselves. We don't pay ourselves to run the company. We're like a startup, mm. and increasingly, we're we. You know, the company's been. I've been with it since '92, so all, coming up on 30 years, we're still a startup. It feels like to me sometimes. That can feel exciting, but it can also be wearing. Very wearing. My. I was say my first three, four years, I set myself a goal. I worked 30 hours a week unpaid yeah. to create the company. So that yeah. meant fundraising. That meant putting flyers on people's cars, putting up the posters myself, yeah. meeting with city council members. But I put in, when I wasn't freelance directing for another company, it was 30 hours a week, disciplined yeah. work, unpaid, yeah. just to get it to the point where we could start to function. Um, when you 
When you came in to Livermore, was there uh, resistance from the existing theater community there, or, or, or did, you, did they think, oh my God, they're taking us over, or did, you, or did they think, oh, thank goodness, somebody's come in to, to, to make us a professional uh, operation? Well, actually, you know, I always invited the uh, director of the community theater to our shows for free, and she would yeah. come and accept those comps and things. But like I said, they had a thriving community theater, yeah. and still do, and they still exist today. They're doing great. So what I was That's doing, great that one does not necessarily take over the other. Yeah, yeah. No, no, We live in coexistence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and since we're part of the greater San Francisco Bay Area, right. I was actually bringing in local actors, but not necessarily local Livermore, local Bay Area. So yeah. we use a lot of, the, you know, the actors work at a dozen companies sure. in the Bay Area. We have so many. Um, so I was bringing those artists to Livermore, many of whom fell in love with Livermore, mm-hmm. some of whom then ended up getting married in Livermore and our wineries. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, just in the, in the years that I grew up in the East Bay, you know, the, uh, Livermore now is unrecognizable from what it was when I was a kid. I mean, there's been so much growth. And I have to think that Livermore Shakes has been a vital part of that, of the growth of that community. We're definitely a part of it. I mean, yeah. we are, a, a, it's a cultural tourism model that I built the yeah. company on. I based yeah. it on an existing model. And um, 40% of our audience comes from outside the Tri-Valley. So we are a tourism magnet, and so we're a part of this whole growth with the Livermore Valley uh, Wine Growers Association, the the family-owned wineries that have built event centers. We have a little wine trolley. Our whole downtown, Livermore Downtown Association, has built up the downtown. Super cute. Um, It's just so fun to be there with restaurants and bars. A lot of them, again, Mm family-owned. So we have this wonderful Americana feel where you can just kind of get away from the city and just be with small shops and talk to people, um, and yet it, it's rural, but it's not rural. And we're, we're technically, the Tri-Valley is called the center of the mega-region. And, the, <laughs> and that's a real term. The mega-region is a real thing. So Livermore's downtown is really the heart of the mega-region. So we have three counties to the east where most people live, yeah. and the three counties to the west is where most people work. Oh, interesting. And okay. we're in the middle. So yeah. we're providing, and we're going to provide even more so, um, a cultural life for this very large community. Hey, I'm Eric Stone Street from ABC's Modern Family. This is David Keckner. You're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company's podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reet Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. We'll be performing the complete works of William Shakespeare, abridged, revised in Arcata, California on March 6th this year and in Lynchburg, Virginia and on May 16th. We'll also perform Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel three times in March, once at Washington and Jefferson College in Pennsylvania on March 19th, and then twice at our home away from home at the Center Stage in Reston, Virginia on March 21st. And we'll perform the complete history of comedy abridged in Clinton Township, Michigan in two weeks on Valentine's 
Valentine's Day on April 17th and 18th at the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater and the Fermilab in Batavia, Illinois. And then we'll kick off the summer with two weeks of performances at the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut this June. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Lisa Tromovich, the producing artistic director of the Livermore Shakespeare Festival. And why Shakespeare? Were you always drawn to Shakespeare? Is that a thing you discovered in grad school as a kid when you came to Livermore? When and where did that sort of love begin? Well, it's kind of funny. Most people have a story about, you know, such and such an actor, and they saw them, and their heart was broken, and and I don't. Um, <laughs> I actually started in new plays, and I was for many years considered a specialist in new plays because I was with the Play Discovery Program at the Globe, and so I kept my interest in new plays and working with living playwrights for a long time. And then um, when I was in Maine at Penobscot Theater, we wanted to expand the, to year-round, and so uh, the artistic director there started a Shakespeare festival. Well, we started it, obviously. I was co-founding of that main Shakespeare festival. So I got my feet wet on how to do it, and we became members of STA, the Shakespeare Theater Association, where you and I are today. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I learned that there's this whole network and this whole resource of people yeah. who are helping each other yeah. do these things called Shakespeare festivals. So, you know, I ended up leaving Maine and, and went out to California and, and worked with PCPA for a little while. And then when I moved back up to the Bay Area where my family is, I um, had this opportunity, and when I saw the wineries, I saw the wineries, and I said, and someone said, oh, you should look at those event centers they have there. And I said, oh, no, if we're going to be in these beautiful wineries, I'm shifting gears. We're going to do an outdoor Shakespeare festival. So it was a little more, uh, I don't know if I want to say mercenary, because I was like, it's a business model, sure. the cultural tourism model, it's a business model, but it's, it was also a a good fit. Yeah. You know, they already had infrastructure for an outdoor Shakespeare festival. But it it wasn't just because I dream Shakespeare all the time. It it really wasn't. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. That seems... Shakespeare was a a businessman who invented the form that we are practicing. This is true. He was a stakeholder in the company. He made his money from ticket sales. That's right. So I think he would have zero objection (laughs) to what you're doing. And also, it's interesting to think of Shakespeare as, you know, he's dead for 400 years and you don't have to pay him royalties. But he's a living playwright in the sense that his plays are ever relevant and um, uh, endlessly adaptable. Uh, or as was mentioned, talked about this morning, we are, those of us who adapt Shakespeare, are in collaboration with Shakespeare. And, he's the, and uh, as Devon Glover said uh, it, when I talked to him for the podcast, the sonnet man, he's the greatest collaborator, Shakespeare. That absolutely resonated with me as well. It, yeah. That's exactly how it feels. And, you know, sometimes you feel a little silly saying, no, I think I'm channeling Shakespeare right now. But it, when you work, his work is of such depth that you really can find yourself in it. You can find your family in it. You can find your friends in it. You can find your enemies in it. And so you find your life in it, and it almost, it does feel like a conversation with a long-dead playwright who lives on through us. You know, the international groups that are here presented. And um, so uh, Carlos and Mercedes, who is from uh, Shakespeare, Argentina, um, they presented their work, and we were talking a lot about how it's interesting when uh, when Shakespeare is translated into another language, they, of course, translate it into their contemporary 
language. Right. Whereas when we... Not their 400-year-old language. Exactly. Yeah. And they, sometimes they may think about it and discuss it, but they usually decide against it. Yeah. And so other people all around the globe do Shakespeare. Yeah. Every country seems to be doing Shakespeare, and they certainly all experience Shakespeare. And they look at it from a, through a contemporary lens. Yeah. It's like, what are these very human stories about very human foibles and desires and what it, does it mean to be human? Yeah. And, you know, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it, it's true for Shakespeare. But they get to look at it th- and hear it yeah. in their own current language. And so yet when we go to translate it or play with it or adopt it, we get all nervous about it. You know, like what some if, of us do. Some of us. Some do. of us really, really don't. I guess some of the people I'm sitting next to right now don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it is an interesting thing to remember that that Shakespeare is being experienced in right now as a yeah. living, breathing playwright, and yet we're experiencing him differently. Well, what you what, what I've discovered diving into his greatness is that you, you you it's easy to see some of his stuff that isn't so great, and then you go, oh right, okay, yeah. He had his off days mm-hmm. and his off plays, and that's cool. It's funny. We think of him, and we started saying this as a joke, but it's really true. We, we refer to him as America's greatest living playwright, William Shakespeare, um, and, uh, which he kind of is, because every country, uh, they might, uh, uh, Carlos and Mercedes might say the same thing. He's the great, greatest living Argentinian playwright right. as also. And, and I think that the fact that you know, children can embrace the plays, you know, we teach a second grade program in all the second grade classrooms in Livermore, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm happy to say that by the second or maybe third, but usually by the second class, there isn't a second grader in Livermore who doesn't love Shakespeare. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, we're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, and they fall in love, and they don't have any preconceptions that they shouldn't like him or be afraid of him, and so they embrace the story. The story that's there is what they embrace, and they have no problem with it. And that's the trick, is getting them young before they are forced to read it in school, and f- and by, by definition, anything you're forced to read, you hate. You know, if you can get them young as a performance idea, see him, seeing him performed, you've got them forever. Do you do you use um, pop-up Shakespeare as a required text? Well, you know, we have not been requiring pop-up Shakespeare, though we do own copies. Um, but we have such a following now among third and fourth graders in Livermore, mm-hmm. or fifth, I think, even now, um, because we've been doing our second grade program so long that we thought we might sell this in our little gift area at the outdoor festival this summer. I think what do that's, you think? I think that's a fabulous idea. <laughs> actually, and it would be fun, since, particularly since Reed lives out in Sonoma. We are actually looking at a copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare right now as we talk. Um, since Reed lives in Sonoma, it'd be fun to do... We, you, we could probably arrange some sort of author's event with the, two, with the second and third graders. Yeah, oh, you that know? would be wonderful. You know, we're doing the Comedy of Errors this summer <laughs> with twins. So we're thinking of doing, like, awards for, like, twinsies nights with oh, you come dressed like your good. parents. And, that's awesome. You know, we could do something fun like that. That's really awesome. Awesome. Um, and now, uh, we, we began talking about how this company has grown and evolved. Now you are looking at building a building, moving indoors, oh, going yeah. year-round. Going year-round. And not us alone. I mean, we're working with a, a cultural core partners. We have about a dozen groups, theater, dance, and other types of groups, diverse groups that need a home. And, um, you know, speaking about that trajectory that arts groups go through, those of us that are smaller, we can't afford to rent the big 500-seat halls. And so we're literally homeless companies. Um, And so what our company has decided to do is to shoulder the burden of doing the fundraising and get this thing going, but we've already got a dozen groups, like Golden Thread that does Middle Eastern work 
expresses Middle Eastern culture as it is expressed around the globe, um, and African American shakes yeah. that does far more than just Shakespeare. Yeah. And um, Futures Exploit Inc. They're, they work with developmentally disabled adults oh, to prepare them for film careers. So we and we have dance companies. We have um, Hispanic Heritage Council and Calicoil Indian Arts and Dance from Dublin, which is our neighbor. Mm -hmm. So all of these groups that say, oh, if we had a little 150 seat black box, we could bring all this culture into downtown Livermore, which is, as I mentioned, the center of the mega region. Right. So it could be we could become, interestingly, a very important cultural center for the Bay Area to serve people that can't always get into San Francisco or Berkeley to experience culture or see their culture reflected. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Comedy Podcast. You can find more information about the Livermore Shakespeare Festival at livermoreshakes.com. Then send us your throbbing economic engine via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Livermore Shakes on Twitter and Instagram at Livermore Shakes. Thanks as always to Master Vintner Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Mike Bloom. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks and congratulations to Eric Stone Street and David Keckner, whose Kansas City Chiefs won Super Bowl 2020 last night. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 686 2058ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. The center of the mega region <laughs> sounds Armageddon-ish and uh, uh, comic book villain-ish. So I urge you to use your powers for good and not evil. <laughs> I will promise to do that. I will promise to do that. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.